0: It's so good to be with you at College you tonight. God has indeed given us a beautiful day and a wonderful evening to come out and worship and glorify His name. Thank you for your presence here tonight to do exactly that, to glorify the King of Kings. I'm privileged to preach the gospel regularly at the East Side Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama. And each year the elders pick a theme for us to focus on, besides focusing on all of Scripture, of course, they want us to focus on maybe particular aspects of serving the Lord. And this year our theme has been, we will glorify the King of Kings. And so I have uh, developed and presented, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 different lessons about glorifying the King of Kings and different aspects of that. And I've really enjoyed the study and I think the congregation has appreciated the focus as we've talked about things like glorifying our King by respecting His authority. Glorifying our King by worshiping Him in the way that He's prescribed. And so many other things that are directed to us that show us how great our King is and how we may praise and glorify His name. So tonight's lesson is just one of those lessons. But I will have to say it's one of my favorite ones of the ones I've got to preach along this line this year. And I hope that you will appreciate it too and that it will mean something to you because it's from Scripture And because it touches at the very heart of what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom and to glorify the king. I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 23. The account in 2 Samuel 23, it's also found in 1 Chronicles 11, but the account in 2 Samuel provides some information that's kind of interesting, especially maybe to young people. If you haven't studied this section of Scripture much, I encourage you to do that. If you don't know about David's mighty men, uh, that's what this chapter is about, David's mighty men. These were men who were valiant warriors uh, of extraordinarily, extraordinary military prowess. They were David's knights of the round table or his SEAL Team Six, however you want to think about it. <laughs> they were his uh, special soldiers and they were men of renown. There were quite a number of them, but three of them were outstanding, and they are focused on in this text. Uh, One's name was Joshua the Shebeth, and he's mentioned in chapter 23 and verse 8. It says about him that he slew 800 men at one time. That's a busy fellow. i tell you what. If you can imagine going against a guy, I know, you know, in the movies... Uh, some of these action heroes. They, they took on quite a few num- quite a few guys at one time. But 800, 800 men at one time. He was, he was some warrior. And he does that for his king, who was David. And the next fellow you read about is Eliezer, who smoked Philistines till his hand was weary and stuck to his sword, chapter 23 and verse 10 says. I can remember as a boy... You know, hammering on something, maybe doing some work for my dad or something. And after about half the day, your hand just does kind of stick. You can't you can't ungrip the hammer anymore. It's just sort of stuck that way, and you sort of have to walk around like that for a while. Because I can't imagine, you know, wielding your sword uh, so long, killing so many people that your your hand just sticks to it. And that's what's being described. And then there's Shama, who it is said in chapter twenty-three, verses eleven and twelve stood and defended a field of lentils against the Philistines. Now, if you don't know what lentils are, and, and some of us may not, it's basically your, your beans and your peas, I guess. Um, and, and most of us, if you're like me, I mean, I like beans and peas, but it's not my favorite food. I'd rather have a chicken sandwich, I think. But, but you know, I, I can't imagine defending a field of lentils. But I can tell you that in Israel, that's a big deal. It's a big deal still today. I got to visit Israel a couple of years ago, and they love their lentils over there. So you're defending this field of lentils, but the big thing is that you're doing it against the enemies of God from uh, the people who would attack, uh, who would attack God's people, the Philistines, the, the sworn enemies of the people of God, if you will. So these are the men that are among the mighty men of David that are presented to us in 2 Samuel 23. David, has had a long and glorious reign and is now near the end of that, but these men were men who were loyal to Him, who were faithful to Him, who sought to serve Him in renowned ways. The text in 2 Samuel 23 seems to imply that it is these three men who came to David at the stronghold in the cave of Adullam. David was hiding out. He'd used that cave before but he was uh, using it as a hideout from the Philistines who had invaded the land. In fact, the Philistines were camped in the Valley of Rephaim, as the story is told in 2 Samuel 23, which is just southwest of Jerusalem. And the Philistines had put a garrison uh, in the city of Bethlehem. Now, if you know much about the Bible, you know the city of Bethlehem's kind of an important city to David because it's his hometown. So here he is late in his reign and he's got Philistines in his hometown. You don't have to guess how he would have felt about that. And so as the text continues on in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 15, David said with longing, "Oh that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem which is by the gate." And and I can just see him maybe a little bit in my you know, using some imagination, but I, I think it's fair to say, you know, he, he's wistfully thinking about his home. He's imagining that well and the, the good water that was in that well, and oh, that I just had a, a drink of water from from home. I just wish somebody would bring me a drink of water from, from that good well right outside my hometown. I can remember as a boy working in the yard, maybe mowing grass and just We lived in Colorado for a while when I was a boy, and I want to tell you, the water that came out of the spigot there was really good. And just sometimes later in life, I thought about how good that water was, and I thought a similar thought. If I just had some of that water that came out of the spigot in Colorado Springs, Colorado, boy, that would be really nice. And so I can just see David standing there and saying that. Sometimes you have to be careful who you say things in front of, though, because... Uh, They'll go try to do it for you. And so David's say, saying that, and he says it out loud, and these three mighty men hear him. And the text goes on and says to us, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. So, you've got to get this in your head. That the picture here, the cave of Adullam is 12 miles from Bethlehem. So, first of all, there's this 12-mile hike to get over to Bethlehem, three guys, and they have to break through the, uh, the, the, the soldiers that are guarding Bethlehem. And, and, and I don't know how much fighting was involved. We're not told what, what all they had to do. But they're, they're hazarding their lives, and David says that in just a moment here. They're, they're risking their lives to get David a drink of water. You talk about men who love their king. And they, they travel the 12 miles. They break through the lines of the Philistines. They get to the well. They get the water. They, they bring it back the 12 miles to the cave of Adullam. Here you go, David. There's your drink of water from the well. Why wouldn't they do that? They love their king. His, what's the saying? His every wish was their command. We'll notice something here, and we'll talk about it again at the end of the lesson. David doesn't drink it. The text tells us he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. We'll talk later about why he did that and what's significant about it. I want to talk to you tonight about a gift for our king, the king of kings, and how his every wish should be our command and our lives find fulfillment in doing what pleases Him, Jesus Christ is our King. He is the Son of David. You know, David was just a shadow of the Christ to come. He was just a representative of who the real King of Israel would someday be. Christ came into this world and the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 as he announces the birth of the child to Mary, he says about the Christ that He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Here's the true King of Israel. The Son of the Highest come into the world. One of the first things that happens when Christ is born, you remember the story in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus was born, interestingly, in Bethlehem, of course. The city of David. The same place where the three mighty men had broke into you know, the lines of the Philistines to get the drink of water. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And wise men come from the east and they lavish Him with gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Fit for a king. Gifts to royalty, gifts of extraordinary, extraordinary wealth and value. And they're given to honor the newborn king. Jesus is born, the king. He's glorified and honored as the king. In Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, rather verses 30 and 31. David had said in the Old Testament that there would be one who would not see corruption. And Peter explains it's the Christ of the seed of David. And it was he that God raised up to sit on his throne. Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Here is Jesus Christ, the One destined to be the King of Israel. The One gifted because He came to be the King of Israel. The One glorified when He sat on the throne of David after His resurrection and ascension. He is the Son of David. He is the King of kings. And we then tonight, as we are citizens of the kingdom, are to be his devoted soldiers, just like those three men. We fight the good fight of faith because we have confessed him as our King. Look in scriptures with me, if you will, at First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse twelve, where the Apostle Paul encourages the preacher Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Timothy is a soldier. And he's to fight the good fight of faith. And part of the reason for it is that he's confessed the good confession. You ever wondered what the good confession is? We don't really have to guess. He goes on, Paul does, in this text to say, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. You remember when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate asked him the question, almost in accusatory fashion, are you a king? Remember Jesus' response? John chapter 18 and verse 37. Jesus answered and said, You say rightly that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. What did Jesus witness before Pontius Pilate? This confession that he's a king. What do you think the good confession is? Christ is my king. Christ is the king of kings. Timothy is to fight the good fight of faith because he's confessed the good confession. Confess Christ as king. And if you read the rest of the text there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that Christ had witnessed this good confession before Pontius Pilate. And then Paul goes on to say that you keep His commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which He will manifest in His own time who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord of lords. Christ is that One. That whole exhortation in First Timothy chapter 6 To fight the good fight of faith is based on the reality that Timothy was serving the king of kings. That's why you fight a good fight. That's why you hike for 12 miles and break through the line of the Philistines to get the water for the king. That's why you do that kind of thing. Not even thinking about what it might cost you. Not even thinking about the hazard that's involved or the sacrifice that it takes. That's why you have that sort of loyalty. Because you're serving the King. The King that you've confessed. We fight for Him. And we strive to please Him at every turn. Later, Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, and he'll say, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. It's all about pleasing the King. You, you don't get entangled in all the stuff of this world. and It doesn't matter if we're talking about worldliness in, in the form of immorality or worldly pleasures or the vices of this world or the achievements of this world or money or wealth or whatever it might be. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about you know, political ambition. We don't get involved. Entangled, I should say, in the affairs of this world. Our purpose, our focus, and what gives us fulfillment and pleasure is pleasing our King. That's what life is all about to the soldier. Pleasing the King. We strive to please Him. And as we've already said, we want to fulfill His every wish. Like the mighty men of David, we show... Sincere and practical regard for the king's wishes. Our aim in life is to ascertain what the king desires and give it to him. It's not because he needs it, but it's because he's our king. Interesting passage, I think, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. Jesus there says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. He who does not take his own cross and follow after Me is not worthy of Me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for My sake will find it. Have you ever ever in your life maybe given a loved one an extravagant present just because you knew they'd be really pleased with that? Maybe they didn't even ask for it. Husbands, you know how that goes. Your wife doesn't really tell you what she wants for her anniversary. But sometimes she drops some hints along the way. <laughs> and it's up to you to figure all of that out. And then not only to get whatever that is, but go beyond that to show her how much you love her. And maybe you have to work a few overtime hours and go out of your way, and that's okay. And she appreciates it. And parents, have you ever... I know you have. Sacrificed above and beyond measure for the welfare of your children. Yet you never counted the cost. But you did it because you loved them. And children sometimes, when they learn to love their parents as they're growing up, will give extraordinary gifts and do extraordinary things to show how much they love their parents. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew? If you don't love Him more than you love your wife or your husband, your father, your mother, your child, if you don't love Him more than that, you're not worthy of the kingdom. You're not worthy of your king. We serve a king who deserves not only our allegiance, not only our faithfulness, but our loving devotion. The willing sacrifice of ourselves. Jesus does not say in this text, take up your mattress and follow me. You know, the cross is more than just a burden. It's an instrument of death. We are willing and ready to give our lives for our King. That's what Jesus is saying to us. As much as we love our parents, as much as we love our children, as much as we love our spouses, we should love Jesus more. And that love and compassion will create in us a desire to motivate us to give to Him. We will be moved to do things that are extraordinary. People who encountered Jesus and understood who He was and had this kind of love for Him as He walked on the earth. They did these kinds of things. You remember Mary. And she comes to Him and takes this very costly oil of spikenard worth a year's wages, 300 denarii. And she pours it on His feet and she wipes it with her hair. And Jesus says, She saved this and anointed Me for My burial. He appreciated the love that he, she had for him, that she was demonstrating in that act. The oil of spikenard. Spikenard uh, grows in the Himalayas. It's the only place it grows. You wonder, how can oil of spikenard cost you know a year's wages? Well, it grows very slowly. They have to uh, distill it, and then they have to take it by a camel or a yak or something, from the Himalayas all the way to Israel. You can imagine that being done in ancient times. That's why it cost that much. She takes it, the whole thing, pours it on his feet. And is it any wonder that some of the disciples say, Oh, that's, that's a waste? You could have sold it and given it to the poor. Jesus said, you have the poor always with you, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute too. But right now, what she's done glorifies the King. Such devotion. And because of this devotion, we are ready to give our lives in the service of the King. The work of Christ makes, at times, great demands on love, on zeal, on courage. And to honor Christ and glorify Him as our King cannot be done without hazard and sacrifice. But His true-hearted citizens and soldiers are willing to endure the toil and brave the peril. I think of what's said about Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 and verse 26. They're described as men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are not a few people in this world today. There are not a few. There are some of whom the same could be said. I think about what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, when he was told, if you keep on this trek that you're going on and go down to Jerusalem, there's nothing but but chains and imprisonment and danger that awaits you. And he says in response to that, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself. In Acts 21 and verse 13, he says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, for the name of my King. I hope that you are, at this point, fairly impressed with the depth of love and devotion that is due to our King. I hope that, at this moment, you are thinking to yourself, do I have that level of depth and devotion? And if I don't, how can I develop it? And how could I show Jesus that I do? What is our gift to the King that would demonstrate this level of devotion? We serve the King by serving others. We demonstrate our devotion to Him by showing His love to others. We do good in His name. In Acts chapter 3, familiar with the story, Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. There's a lame man asking for alms. <coughs> Peter says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. Peter didn't have money to give, but what he had he gave. And what he had was the miraculous gift that enabled him to heal this man. And so he says to him, Notice, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Here's a gift that I'm giving you, and I'm giving it in the name of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 and verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in My name because you belong to Christ. The word Christ is the anointed one. The anointed one. What is He anointed for? He's anointed to be king. In the Old Testament, people were anointed to be priests and kings and Jesus Christ is both. But He says, if you just give somebody a cup of cold water in My name, because you belong to Christ, because you're His soldier, His citizen, His loyal servant. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means lose your reward. We do good in His name. We use our gifts to glorify His name. Look carefully again at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 and look at it as if you've never read it before, where the Apostle Peter says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let them do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why do you use your gifts with all that you have and all that God has given you for the benefit of others so that God may be glorified? Why do you show hospitality? The answer is right here. Why do you minister to others The answer is right here. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. We share these gifts with one another to the glory of His name. That's what New Testament Christians did early on. They were willing to give up what they had. You know what happened early on in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. With great power, it says in verse 33, with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and distribution was made as anyone had need. We share His gifts in service to one another. In so doing, we show that we love Him. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, there's a great verse along this line that tells us that God is not going to forget what we do for one another, what we do for His people. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown, it says, toward His name. Well, how have I shown love? How have I labored in love and, and, and shown that toward His name? The rest of the verse. In that you have ministered to the saints. You show your love to Him by ministering to His people. And so we say, when we serve others, we serve Him. Jesus on one occasion in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 9, and verse 36, took a little child and set the child in the midst of them and took the child up in his arms, and he said, whoever receives one of these little children in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. In Matthew chapter 25, you have that great judgment scene depicted and explained by Christ. And the king comes and he sets on his throne and he divides the nations before him as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. You know the story, right? And the king says to those on his right hand in verse 34, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Notice, it's the king who's speaking. Notice what he's saying. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me Food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and in prison and you came unto me. And the righteous ask, When did we ever see you in these situations? When did we ever do these things for you? And Jesus responds in this way The king will say, The king will say, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. A number of years ago there was a denominational preacher who took a trip to one of the Caribbean islands i think it was the Dominican Republic and he was going there to work in uh, some some famine relief in a remote area of that country he he flew in as he describes it uh, on one of these bush planes, you know it lands on a grass airfield kind of like a crop duster or something uh, and he, he had a limited amount of baggage and supplies that he was taking but he did take some things with him for for the welfare of the people And he spent a number of days working there among uh, the native people of uh, the Dominican Republic and uh, after his days were over he had arranged for the bush pilot to come and pick him up in the same place that he let him off and so he was actually waiting for the plane to arrive at this grass airfield. And as he's waiting there, there is a woman who comes up carrying her baby. Maybe a two-year-old child. And the child is plainly starving to death. It's, it's a black child, but the, the skin is, is white and splotchy, and the hair is falling out in clumps due to malnutrition. And the woman comes up, and she says to the man, she says, Please, sir, take my, take my baby home with you to the United States. He's going to die. Please take my baby. And the fellow said, I, I can't do that. That's not allowed. I'm sorry. I just can't do that. And the woman began to just beg and plead with him in tears. Please, take my child. He said, just about that time, the airplane came and landed. And it hadn't more than stopped, and he ran out to it, threw his bags in the back and hopped in the plane. And the woman ran out behind him, screaming all the way, Please, take my baby. Please. And he said he was so glad when the engine revved back up and drowned out the screams of that woman outside his window screaming, please, please take my baby. He said he was halfway back to the capital city before he realized who the baby was. But you know, right? Because the king said in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. That makes us more than slightly uncomfortable, doesn't it? What have I done to glorify the King? What have I given to someone else in the name of the King? Did you know that tonight, as we sit here in this beautiful lighted auditorium, there are 1.2 billion people on this planet who do not have electricity? None. Did you know that while over 90% of households in the United States have at least one vehicle, even in developed countries, less than a third do have one vehicle. Did you know that the average household income worldwide, the average worldwide for a household is $10,000? Did you know that 84% of the world's population live below the U.S. poverty line. To put that another way, if you are at the poverty line in America, you are wealthier than 84% of the people in this world. Do you know that most families in this room are currently in the top 1% of income worldwide? $32,400, if you make more than that, you're in the top 1% of income worldwide. All of this, and yet Americans donate 1.9% of their income to charitable causes. What are Christians doing? With all that God has given us. It's been my privilege to be sent on a number of trips to foreign countries in the last three years, especially. And I've been able, because of the goodness of brethren who sent me to preach and teach the gospel, to visit four countries that would be considered third world. Zambia, Zimbabwe, Guatemala, and parts of Colombia, although not all of Colombia would be considered third world. I'll show you some pictures from one of those visits. This is last year in Zimbabwe. People in these pictures are Christians. Up in the upper left is a woman with a huge tumor on her neck. Medical facilities in Zimbabwe are not readily available. And if they are, the natives can't afford them. This woman, because she is a Christian, Christians in America, after I showed this picture, sent her the funds to have an operation, to have her tumor removed. In the middle upper picture, you see my friend Tad Porter preaching to a, a church It's very typical in Zimbabwe now. Some of them have buildings, but a lot of them meet just like this under a tree, which is great in the dry season. It's problematic in the rainy season. And they have babies like the one in the upper right. And they have old people like we do that come to church every service. Those three men that you see in the lower left walk five to six miles, walk, One of them was over 90 when that picture was taken. The one in the hat on the left. In January, he passed away. And that's how Christians live in third world countries. Thousands of them. Thousands of them. There's daily life in Zimbabwe. In the upper left, you either walk or maybe you get drawn somewhere by a cart. Of course, they have taxis and buses over there, and usually they're crammed full. The middle left, if you live in a village, you don't have running water, you pump it at the well, the village well. You're eating the bottom left meal every day, just corn mash, really. Three times a day, if you can get it, you're fortunate. You're going down to the village well to carry water and do your laundry. The ladies in the middle are carrying the maybe 10 gallons of water, maybe weighing well over 50, 60, 70 pounds on their heads. Sitting by the hut, you see that a lot. The woman at the right bottom is washing her clothes in a wheelbarrow. Most times they don't have a wheelbarrow. I don't want to make you feel bad. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to help you understand that you have a king to glorify. Life's not about your pleasures. It's not about living comfortably. It's about glorifying your king. And I'll just tell you, to be plainly honest with you, I, I can't identify with David's mighty men. I'm not like that. I wish I was more like that. I wish I didn't care that my life was in danger when my life's in danger because I'm serving the king. David poured the water out on the ground. That water that they'd gone 12 miles to get, fought through the enemy lines, brought 12 miles back, and He poured it out on the ground. I'm not asking you to be a mighty man tonight. I'm asking you to be the water. If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Why would you do that? Why would you just pour out the water that these men had gone to such extraordinary lengths to bring you. What does the text say? He poured it out to the Lord. It's a waste. You're throwing the waters on the ground. It's going to just go into the ground. Nobody's going to get to drink it. It came from that good well. doesn't matter. it out to the Lord to glorify the Lord. It doesn't matter how great your talents are, your aspirations are in this world. Doing something to the glory of the Lord is what matters. You say, well, I don't want to waste my life doing that. The water could have talked. Don't waste me doing this. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. That's what Paul said. The time of my departure is at hand. the applications of this lesson are for you to make. But I want to assure you of this, that if you will sacrifice yourself for the welfare of others, especially for your brethren in this world, you will find extraordinary fulfillment. But more important, you'll glorify your King. And in the end, you're going to stand before him. And if you haven't noticed, in that throne scene, all the ones on the right have done something for the king. I believe that's where you want to be. What will you do for the king? Right now, He's giving you an invitation to become His citizen and soldier and servant. If you've never named His name, name Him as the King of kings tonight. Make the good confession. He's the King. And own Him as that. And turn away from sin and turn away from a life of selfishness. Turn to a life of sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow Him. Be baptized in water for remission of your sins where you die with Him, to rise and walk in newness of life. We'd ask you to take those steps right now. While together we stand, while we sing.